Summer is here, and we're as busy as ever at the DSR Network. Our podcast schedule has expanded to include the DSR Daily Brief, DSR Foreign Policy, DSR Politics, the DSR Spy Show, Words Matter, Foreign Office with Michael Weiss, Next in Foreign Policy, and The Secret Life of Cookies. To celebrate our expansion, we're bringing you this special offer. Through the month of June, membership is 50% off. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, bonus content across all of our podcasts, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRexpands, all one word. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRexpands. Thank you for your support. 9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C. Glad to be back. Last week, we were taking care of some technical issues here, and we are back with a pretty full schedule this week. We won't be doing the the morning daily brief shows, but all the other shows will be on. Um, And uh, of course, we're going to kick things off with the spy show, and that means my co-host for that, Mark Polymeropoulos, is here with me somewhere in the D.C. metropolitan area. Isn't that true, Mark? Somewhere? That's right. I'm in Northern Virginia, fresh off watching, as you, if you saw my Twitter feed, a incredible run by our high school baseball team that won the state championship with a, uh, a potential first-round pitcher who closed out the final game throwing a 97-mile-an-hour fastball. Six foot seven, 220 pounds. He's going to go first round in the draft. Kid's name is Bryce Eldridge. So anyhow, so I've been immersed in high school baseball. It's good to be back in the real world. I have a lot of catching up to do. So yeah. awesome to be here. And your horrible Boston Red Sox beat the Yankees twice this weekend. That was wonderful. I credit it from uh, when I was on Morning Joe on Friday complaining bitterly about the Red Sox. Then they won the series. So uh, uh, I, I, I would say that, David, anytime you go on air in the future, please talk about the Red Sox. I, I, uh, the last time I was, I was on just this morning. but, the, but I know that. But last that. week. Uh, I made the mistake of saying that, you know, that difference. I, I used an analogy in which the Yankees were the winners and the Red Sox were the losers. It caused a lot of uh, aggravation there. And congratulations on your win. You're 14 games back. Anyway. By the way, one quick thing. I noticed that last podcast we did when I wore my Red Sox jersey, you did not do a video clip of it. And I think that was done on purpose. Uh, as you know, our producer is also Red Sox fan, yes. so I don't think it was it. Anyway, let's right. let's get to the business at hand. We are really fortunate uh, to be joined today by Calder Walton. Calder Walton is Assistant Director of the Belfer Center's Applied History Project and Intelligence Project. Uh, he is a uh, noted uh, and uh, prolific author, and he has written a new book, which could not be more on topic for what we're doing here. Um, and in fact, has the title to go with it. It's called Spies, the Epic Intelligence War Between East and West. And it is a great single volume history of um, the intelligence side of 
the Cold War and before, because I think one of the theses of the book is that um, at least for the Soviets, the Cold War began in 1919. Uh, we caught up in 1947. Um, but uh, along the way, uh, uh, great stories, um, uh, many of which you may know, many of which you will not know, but all of which resonate particularly at this moment in history. Um, and uh, so welcome, Calder. Oh, David, thanks for, for having me. It's great to be here with you. Uh, good to see you, Mark. I can't compete on any with any baseball, I'm afraid. The talk of the town this morning uh, is my my six-year-old son's school has been delayed because of a bear sighting in, in neighboring Arlington. I'm here in Cambridge. Uh, so that's the talk of the town over here. Uh, well, you know, it's a dangerous neighborhood. I, the last time I was in Cambridge, the talk of the town was that a postman had been attacked by a flock of turkeys, and uh, turkeys, are, turkeys are vicious. I'm telling you, yeah. uh, an, an underrated enemy of, of mankind. No, they are particularly in Cambridge. Particularly, we exactly. we lived. We used to live across the street from this. The, I was actually the president of Harvard's house, and his yard is full of these turkeys. And our dog yeah. had only ever seen a pigeon, and and so it's like, well, this is a very large pigeon. Um, it's and a then prehistoric animal. Yeah, and, yeah. And the, Turkey spread its tail. It was a. It was. It was. It was horrifying. Look, let, let me ask the first question, then I'll go, go to Mark. Uh, when I said it was viewed through the lens of the moment, obviously we are in a moment where uh, the, the word espionage is floating around a lot, although kind of being distorted in its use in the Espionage Act. Um, but the abuse of uh, national defense information and secrets by uh, the former president, really cuts to a core point of your book, which is mm -hmm. the political leadership matters for how intelligence is conducted. And um, Donald Trump always had a kind of a tortured relationship with the intelligence community because he didn't trust him. He thought they were out to get him. Paranoia yeah. runs as a sub-theme through your book with other leaders like Stalin. Uh, and I'm just wondering, as you look at a guy like Trump going through what he's going through now and running again for president, what do you think that uh, portends for American intelligence going forward? Well, it's uh, pretty terrifying. Terrifying is the word that comes to mind. Um, I think I was struck last week, like everyone else, uh, with the indictment. Uh, I was also struck by the news that that China has opened, uh, apparently opened a, um, or is in the process of opening a spy site, an eavesdropping center in Cuba. Uh, taken together, uh, I think that we've got the, the, the makings of a really um, nightmare situation. The way that Trump, um, according to the indictment, left the highest possible grade U.S. secrets lying around in Mar-a-Lago, uh, in the ballroom, we've all seen the pictures, uh, in the bathroom, in the shower, in the business center. Uh, the ballroom's apparently poolside, so someone could just sort of swim up and skip on over and open the door, and there's America's crown jewels of secrets. They're not just American secrets either. They're um, Five Eyes allied uh, intelligence. Some of the secrets are code word intelligence, which Mark knows about more than I do. But actually, looking at the indictment, some of the, the 
the code words are so sensitive that even the code words themselves haven't been redacted. That is the upper, upper echelons of US and allied state secrets. Uh, this is information that, without being melodramatic about it, um, US intelligence, the US intelligence community and its allies have risked lives to collect and to hold. And it's just been left around. Now, combine that with the fact that at least two um, Chinese nationals are known to have been intruders in Mar-a-Lago at the relevant time. Um, people, uh, members of the club, have said that once you're a member, there's no really closed doors anywhere. I think that we need to operate on the assumption that all of those secrets in the boxes um, left lying around Mar-a-Lago must surely be uh, known to any foreign intelligence service worth its name. Um, combined with the Chinese spy satellite, a spy um, base in Cuba, not too far away uh, from Mar-a-Lago, we can only imagine the kind of intelligence that's now um, in the hands of the Chinese and the Russians and in any other hostile foreign government. Let me let me ask you a question, Mark, before you ask a question to Calder. Um, the, 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 there are 31 counts of abusing national defense information in, among the 37 counts, uh, that, uh, that Jack Smith has brought against, or this grand jury has brought against Trump. Uh, and as, as Calder points out, some of the cited pieces of intelligence are hypersensitive, but I have a sense that some of the most sensitive pieces of intelligence aren't mentioned in this indictment. Would I be right, do you think, in assuming that? And, and perhaps if I am, maybe you could explain why to people. So, so David, I, I think that, that what people don't understand is, you know, the president of the United States uh, each day is supposed to, now I'm not, I'm not sure Trump did, but they receive, they receive the president's daily brief. And that is the crown jewels of the intelligence community. It's a document. It used to be hard copy. Now, I, I don't know. I can't remember what Trump was getting. Uh, if it was just a briefing or it was an, on, on an iPad, Obama, President Obama loved it uh, uh, on an iPad. But ultimately, um, you know, these, these are the crown jewels. And the President of the United States has access to just about everything. I think one of the things that's going to be really interesting, and we haven't heard this yet, is the damage assessment that the DNI is obviously doing on this. Um, because if you take a look at the indictment, and I, and I read it closely, it seems that there was information in there that, that certainly could be, uh, 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 you know, could, could have come from the PDB. Um, there's also reports that, that there was a document, basically a summary of U.S. attack plans on Iran. Um, and so, you know, this, a, a couple things uh, on this. First of all, it's extraordinarily sensitive. You know, I, I've said this so many times, you know, it, it's, it's almost like you're, you know, you're just screaming into the wind, but ultimately, you know, sources and methods are at stake. Sources meaning our agents. These are individuals we recruit. You know, there's a sacrosanct bond we have with someone, a Russian, Chinese, Iranian government official who decides to spy for us. And that's we're going to keep them secure. Um, yet, yet their information could be kind of floating in the ether. Um, that is, that, that violates a pact that we have. The other has to do with communications intercepts. Again, absolutely critical. Um, uh, uh, you know, it, it, you know, particularly when it comes to, to military plans and intentions of uh, of other countries. And so, you know, one thing that I that I think I hope people understand. Again, I think you're screaming into the wind sometimes. Is that if I had taken one of these documents home, or maybe two of them, um, I'm in huge trouble as a U.S. government official. Now, I, I I would probably get disciplined if I refuse to give any either one or two back. I'm getting fired. 
And so there's, an, you know, there, there's a there's a structure in the intelligence community that, you know, there's is there's standards, there's rules, there's a culture of respecting the need to protect classified information that President Trump is throwing um, uh, right out the window. So that's that's you know, really particularly damaging. And, you know, that, but but, you know, one of the things that we, you know, the, the American public is so divided, kind of the MAGA world that, you know, you can't reason with anybody on this. Um, you know, it, the, the, it is almost impossible to have a discussion. Now, I did see this morning that some, some polling came out that I think uh, a pretty you know, large percentages of the American public do think Trump did something wrong. So that is I- encouraging. But the, the Trump base will never be swayed. Um, uh, and that is uh, that is that that gives me a, a lot of regret, even sadness, because, you know, those of us who swore to protect our country really did so with the notion that we're going to protect classified information. Um, uh, and, uh, and, you know, there, there's no, there's no middle ground. There's no, there's nothing squishy in there. There's no gray. It's, it is black and white, period. Um, I remember leaving my, my, the, you know, an embassy sometimes I'm thinking about, you know, uh, uh, an embassy that is secured by us Marines that has multiple do- locks, doors, alarms. And I was even nervous. Hey, did I even spin the safe correctly? And I would go back to make sure the safe, the safe itself was spun. Um, uh, yet we have a former president who has a total disregard for uh, uh, the need to protect um, classified information. So it's, it, to me, it's almost a sad day uh, uh, for the United States. I never thought we would see something like this. Uh, you know, it's, you know, uh, my own experience is not anything to do with current intelligence. It's simply to do with um, um, studying the past. And um, I did um, help write MI5's official history, 100-year history. And for that, um, I had to go into, uh, it was uh, uh, with my former supervisor in Cambridge, Christopher Andrew, and he, he offered me the chance to work on it part time. And to do that, this is looking at records from 100 years ago, 90, you know, 80 years ago, even that. And these are more than anyway, live state secrets. The procedures were, you know, up to the eyeballs. Um, so it really just from the, you know, from that small taste I had. This is really this is really jarring. So I can only imagine what it's like for professionals um, who have, like you, Mark, who have risked so much uh, to see this stuff just like lying around. I think I think it's also it's sort of the two events that come to mind uh, recently is also then the junior uh, national guardsman uh, Jack DeSherry, I think his name was, that that had access to extraordinary access to U.S. state secrets. Um, and it's again, it seems like allied um, governments as well. Um, and then took it upon himself for whatever, I'm afraid I have stated idiotic reason he had uh, to simply sort of disseminate it online. So, you know, these two cases between Trump uh, and then the, the, the National Guardsmen, um, we might not, you know, we think of the spy world today as sort of all state of the art, you know, cyber, you know, um, hugely advanced technologies. Well, well, actually, sometimes people make it incredibly easy for foreign intelligence uh, uh, services. Um, I mean, any intelligence service worth the name will have recruited uh, uh, somebody working in Mar-a-Lago, a cook, a cleaner, you know, you name it. (laughs) It's probably actually the other way around. There's probably probably, um, few and far people who are actually just cooks and cleaners there who are not <laughs> now now i think you're on to a good saturday night live sketch where, where everybody at mar-a-lago is a spy for somebody that's it 
Well, hang on. Uh, you're Mossad, aren't you? No, no, no. I'm MI6, right? No, no, no. Oh, I thought you were the French. No, no, no. Well, That's I mean, it. you don't even need that because, you know, there was famously the instance where at the height of tensions with North Korea, Trump decided to hold an NSC meeting on the patio there. And he had stuff displayed on the table, you know, and people were walking around and taking pictures of it and so forth. He had no regard. Um, but but it does raise a question, which I would ask you in the context of your book. Several, several of the big stories in your book are of um, spies who are turned, spies who provided uh, national secrets to the other side, whether Russian to the U.S. or, or the other way. Um, but that was a different era in the sense that the secrets um, – were not easily disseminatable. And now we live in an era where, you know, Reality Winner is looking at a summary of of Intel stories every morning at her job, and she just says, oh, I'm going to download that, print that out, send it out. Or this guy, Teixeira, is like, I'm going to email that to my chat group. Um, and And I just wonder if the sort of the, biggest operational security challenges we have today are not from other governments. They're from an environment that has just got an insatiable appetite for content and is sucking it out of every available place. I think you're onto something there, David. I think that's true. I also think that Mark Mark knows uh, a lot more about this than I do, but it seems to me that post 9-11, there was this huge shift from the Cold War in the book, I sort of say that the Cold War actually never really, the Cold War never really ended as far as the Kremlin was concerned. It sort of bled over. But anyway, that's a, uh, a, another subject. But post 9-11 in the US government, there was a shift from the from the Cold War uh, in which secrets were, were, were held on a uh, need-to-know basis. So does this person need to know this secret to then, for, for understandable reasons, need to share? So the imperative was to share intelligence, to prevent the stovepiping of intelligence and intelligence failures. Um, and I think that we are now seeing some of the problems of that, um, of people like the National Guardsman being able to access, to dip his toe in this pool of intelligence um, that really on any objective look at it, he has no, had, had, had no rationale, no reason having access to the secrets that he did, given his day job in, in Massachusetts. Um, so I think that it's both a sort of systemic problem of, okay, is it perhaps time to pump the brake and to say, to be a bit more conservative with intelligence sharing, but then also where are the safeguards about people um, accessing information that really they don't have uh, any um Purpose for for, for 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 accessing. What do you think? Well, you know, so it that it, it, it makes it, it brings up a really interesting point because, of course, after nine eleven, the intelligence community got absolutely you know skewered. They got shish kebab um, because of the stovepipes, because of a lack of sharing. And so then we expanded the aperture, and then of course more people have more access to information. So you ultimately you're always trying to find um, a, a sweet spot. But I want to I want to switch gears just a little bit because the book, and again, I have it here. First of all, how long did this take you to write? 
took me uh, twelve pages. Yeah, six six long years. Six uh, years. That is as old as as old as my son, who I just mentioned. Impressive. Well, the beginning. That, that is, so, I don't think I have the, the the patience to do that. So that is that, that is uh, amazing. But but I think that one of the things that the book. Well, first of all, there's there's a line in the book that I love right in the beginning, and you wrote, "What's old is new again." And I and I think that this book is not only a history book, but it's also, you know, or or is it? The question for you is: it a blueprint for kind of the next Cold War, which is between the U.S. and China? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think one of the striking thing is uh, when you look at it from the perspective of intelligence and national security. What happened in 1945, 46, 47 was that the U.S. government and its close ally, the British, were they were already in a Cold War, they just didn't know it. Okay, that there had been they had been the the victim of this onslaught of Soviet intelligence collection during the Second World War, when they thought they were allies with Stalin's Soviet Union, and in fact he was, uh, as the defences were down, was collecting his stealing as many secrets, scientific and technical secrets, the most important being the atomic bomb secret. So the U.S. government, and then it was really in 45, 46, 47, America struggles to set up an architecture to deal with national security for the first time, creates the CIA, you know, quite late in the day in 1947. So that's the story that, that it sort of unfolds when you look at it from the perspective of intelligence and national security. And I'm afraid we're seeing the same thing, an echo or a, a rhyme, as Mark Twain said about history, playing out today with... Um, Yes, with Russia, but even more importantly, with China. So when you look at it, and this is the, the documentary evidence is few and far between for this. So I've relied heavily on interviews. Um, but but according to the people I've interviewed um, from inside U.S. intelligence about China, the onslaught, the Chinese intelligence onslaught began way earlier than, um, than most uh Western audiences and policymakers thought in 2005, amidst the you know, the height of the, the the war on terror, the Chinese um, intelligence service, the Ministry of State Security, declared war on the U.S. intelligence. And from that point on, uh, through its best resources, uh, uh, you know, officials, everything at U.S. intelligence, all with the aim of undermining U.S. presence uh, in Southeast Asia and supplant it. And then that that onslaught in the shadows has only increased since she took power. So once again, what what America is, uh, and I I was born in this country, I love this country, but so I feel able to say is what America's really good at is doing one thing at one time. So we're going to fight the Second World War. We're going to um, you know after it has to be said, uh, slow start. Uh, but once America gets going, it gets going and, you know, defeating the fascist powers or the war on terror, um, in, in, you know, incredible counter-terrorist operations. But doing two things at the same time, worrying about resurgent great powers at the same time as counter-terrorism, worrying about the Soviet Union at the same time as the Third Reich, not so much. Um, so it's, I, I, as far as intelligence and national security is concerned, I, we are unambiguously already in a cold war with uh, with China, and the real question is not. You know, in historians, my my um, my colleagues sort of fiercely debate this. As far as I'm concerned, the question isn't whether we're in a cold war. It's that we all hope it remains cold and doesn't turn hot. 
Uh, well, I'm one of those historians that's on the other side of that argument, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm not going to dwell on it. Uh, right. But but I would like to probe a little bit on yeah. uh, the differences yeah. between the Russian approach, which yeah. is the bulk of your book, and the Chinese approach, yeah. which is at the end. Yeah. And I, let yeah. me just cite one example. Yeah. Right now, and and certainly following the fall of the Soviet Union and the Putin era, particularly. Yeah. Russia saw that it was not going to compete with the United States on an equal basis. And its goal geopolitically was essentially to undermine the international system. China seeks to influence that inf international system. And its goal is to supplant U.S. influence within the international system. So there's a big strategic difference as I see it. Do you do you agree with that? And are there tactical consequences of that kind of strategic difference? I, I think you're absolutely no. You are absolutely right that 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 uh, Russia is in operates on the old zero sum approach. You know, if you if the West if the U.S. is doing badly, Russia is doing well. So un undermine negative. And you're quite right that that China actually has a positive um, uh, message. Uh, positively trying to uh, supplant the U.S. Um, as numero uno on the world stage, so it does add. It does. It does um, uh, lead to differences. But of course, the two emerging thanks to Xi and Putin's so-called uh, alliance agreement are no limits. Uh, which, uh, if you read their speech on the eve of the war in Ukraine, includes technical cooperation. So I think that what we see is it's like they're marching in different directions um, and they have different tactics, one negative undermine, one positive steal as much technology in order to provide a positive alternative. But the, the, but the, the result is the same, which is to overturn the established US-led world order, um, either doing it by negative, hitting away, cutting away, or positively. Uh, this is actually a proactive new model we're going to give. Uh, on your point, David, about the cold, the 20th century's Cold War, there are massive differences. History doesn't repeat itself. China's economic weight, of course, makes it completely different uh, to the Soviet Union's uh, ever was. We could effectively treat the Soviet Union like a pariah uh, during the Cold War, um, and it just doesn't apply now. It's far more complex and dangerous situation. But that's why I sort of keep quite specifically talking about intelligence, um, which is my field. So when it's seen through that prism, uh, it seems to me we're in the Cold War. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair point. Let me say, Mark, this is normally the moment in the podcast where we take a break and we say to everybody who is out there in the general public, thanks uh, for joining us. But as you know, the last bit of each of our podcasts is for members only. And that's why you should become a member. So go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, $5 a month, and you get all the bonus content from all the podcasts. And there are so many of them um, that you'll want to get all the content. Listen to this conversation. We're about to go to the very most interesting, sensitive parts of um, intelligence. And unless you're a member, you won't hear it. So go, go become a member. Uh, for now, thanks to the general public. Come back soon. Come back as a member. From members, please stand by.